Welcome to the Commerce Famous Podcast. This is your host, Ben Marks. And with me today, I have a man who I hope has a huge closet for all the hats that he has worn in his time in the commerce industry. Uh, Rick Watson, what makes you Commerce Famous? That is a good question. I really have no idea. Um, I, I think, um, look, I've been around a long time. I've seen a lot of good in e-commerce and I've seen a lot of bad. And um, I think long story short, when I started my consulting firm, I had this idea, I had a pretty simple idea that if I'm going to attract customers, people need to know who I am and need to respect what I think about um, the e-commerce ecosystem generally. And so that that simple idea led me to start writing more and more. And that has led to LinkedIn following, podcasts, email newsletter, and kind of other other things you see today. But that's that's kind of the short uh, short answer. Yeah, I mean, in this in this day and age, um, it, it really uh, really makes sense if you have the experience to to become almost your own your own media brand. But but I I want to kind of talk about how we got here. I mean, just looking through looking through your uh, your CV, uh, you you really have you've you've been you've been a part of this industry kind of Rubik's cubing things. So you, you're you're looking at it from all sorts of angles, uh, going all the way back. I think even even going back to like 98, 99, you're at, you're at Stingray uh, as, a, as, a, as an engineer, uh, later acquired by Rogue Wave. But, you know, Rogue Wave eventually, you know, you know, decades later gets put together with Perforce. And so I think, you know, back then you were working on some UML modeling tools. So you were on the, on the software engineering side of things, right? 100%. And then, and then from there, you know, you you end up you end up at Auction Rover, right? And then, and the I think for me that's kind of a key step uh, for you because Auction Rover ends up, you know, being part of Channel Advisor, becoming Channel Advisor. What what was that like back then? And this is this is what ninety nine to to two thousand and one. Yeah, it w- it was pretty wild. Um, you know, basically when I found out. Uh, how, how I got connected to Auction Rover is that Stingray was founded by Scott Wingo, who was the founder of, oh, wow. of Channel Advisor. So that gives you some idea. I, I finished grad school in in uh, Tennessee. I moved to North Carolina, and I go to work for, for Scott in Stingray. And about a year into my tenure there, he he sold he sold the business and starts an internet company like everyone did and like it's almost like everyone's starting AI companies now you know before yeah. in in 99 98 99 if anyone who had a little bit of an idea and some friends together and, and a laptop they were they were starting dot-com companies uh, and auction rover was one of them and the idea was that ebay was going bananas and there's yeah. going to be a lot of auction sites out there and it's very hard to search them all at the time like there was there wasn't just one auction site. There were dozens of auction sites. Um, and so the idea behind Auction Rover, we, we had no business model for the record. And <laughs> re- really the idea was that we were going to make it easy for buyers to search all like a meta crawler for auction sites. And we were going to do that to be, basically be the world's best search engine for auction sites, almost like the Google, you know, what would then, even, even Google wasn't Google then. It was like Alta Vista then. But um, yeah. um how do we be the best search engine for auction sites? Because we're going to have eBay and you're going to have these other auction sites at the time. Yeah. And then, well, and, and so with, with all that development and obviously, 
you know, surviving the dot-com crash that, that those of us have been in the industry long enough. That actually predates my time in the industry, but I remember the dot-com crash because I was just coming out of, uh, out of university. Uh, you know, you, you, you end up with Channel Advisor and you're there for, you're there for like almost 10 years and you move right up the ranks. I mean, so, so effectively from your auction rover days all the way up till 2010, you know, you go from, you know, engineering lead to product management to director of engineering. And at the time, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the growth uh, of Channel Advisor? Because I think you're starting off, you're talking about, uh, you know, what, 5 million, 20 million in revenue? Yeah. So um, when I started with Channel Advisor, we're talking like five or six people. I mean, we're talking about a, a big room with five or six, you know, people in it. And, and like, there's a, a different person at each corner of the room. You know what I mean? Like that, this kind of setup. Um, and when I left Channel Advisor in 2010, at the end of 2010, there's about 350 people in the company. Um, you know, they had offices in Germany and the UK and Australia and um, Ireland. So the growth was pretty amazing. It was not a straight line. Like, yeah, you know, not only did we go through the dot-com crash and come out of that, we came out of 2008. Um, and so we had two or three time rounds of layoffs during that time. Yeah. Um, not to mention sort of multiple rounds of, of funding. And so going from engineering, my idea is like, I always thought like, oh, I'm going to be a software engineer my whole career. And yeah. what, what, I, what I thought, as I kind of got doing things, I realized that I had more talents beyond just engineering. And I, I really love talking to customers, but like, what do you want? Like, tell me about how you run your business. And so one of my favorite things was always to visit customer sites, walk the warehouse, um, go in, understand how they, you know, in product intake, um, how they use products like Shipworks and ShipStation, like even like Stamps.com and Disha back in the day to ship out. Like, how did all this stuff work? Um, yeah. And so Channel Advisor, it, it was an interesting company because it really did kind of inv- invent the idea that big companies could make a, a living on a marketplace. Um, and, and that wasn't true. Um, there, there weren't tools for that before. Channel Advisor grows from you know, like five million in, in, in revenue. You're, you're you're growing up to like like five people in a room, up to three hundred and fifty people by the time you 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 leave in twenty ten. And and if I remember correctly, that's like and you're you're doing four billion GMV. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's. I mean, obviously, these marketplaces, you know, most particularly eBay and Amazon, are still growing like crazy, and um, for for us, our job was to help people sell at scale on marketplaces, period. Uh, and, and so we were working with a lot of big brands, eBags, Under Armour, IBM. A lot of big brands were working with Channel Advisor because, I don't know, just eight to ten years earlier, people thought eBay was for Beanie Babies and Amazon was... A yard sale so you know or amazon was only selling books so the idea that you would 
I mean, first of all, people had clearly gotten over the hump of selling online, um, particularly the early adopters. But the the idea that as an enterprise brand that you would sell in a marketplace, even to some of them today in 2023, is still kind of a crazy idea where you don't find Nike on Amazon. But some remnants of that thinking, for I would say the the mainstream brands was was you know still prevalent in in, in that time frame. Yeah, and I think so. I'm I'm actually dying to get to just a, a look at what's sort of I don't know if you call it a marketplace renaissance or something that's happening today, but but yeah, I, re- I remember back in the day, all of the all of the oh, just just dozens and dozens of, of of random marketplaces, and I was I was playing music professionally, so I was always trying to find drum equipment. Um, you know, and, and there were there were some places that were better than others. eBay was pretty good. Now, if you know, if I jump forward a few years, when I actually joined eBay as an employee, um, you know, working working for Magento in 2014, I was surprised to learn that by that time, like, I, yeah, I even I still thought of eBay as an auction site. And they're like, yeah, no, most of our most of our sales are like buy it now. We're yeah. basically just a sales a direct sales channel, and. You know, but I don't want I don't want to jump too far ahead because I also think there was something interesting that happened in your time at Channel Advisor. So even as you're you're moving up in the ranks, uh, you know, there's a note about how you um, you know you actually ended up advising eBay and Amazon on their APIs, right? So you I think saw you saw the utility portability and, and it really the efficiency that could be brought into the space by helping them sell better, you know, work better and not just with channel advisor, but these, these improvements, I think were an improvement for anyone trying to integrate with them. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, particularly because channel advisor aggregated a lot of sellers. And so for, for us as the biggest provider in the market, working with eBay and Amazon to open up their APIs was always kind of a double-edged sword because we, you know, we were, before APIs, what we were doing, we were scraping their website. And that's really no, not efficient for any of us, even if we could have sort of afford to do it because of, you know, VC money or like whatever it was, right? But we knew long-term, the only way that this is going to be a sustainable business that big companies can rely on is if we have modern tools. And APIs were the way to do that. And so because of the volume that we had, you had to build industrial strength APIs that had things like retries and error codes and could handle large volumes of data, not just sort of like one posting at a time, especially if you need to post a million things a day. So, you know, how's that going to happen? So those, um, I would say eBay, even from its early days, on a relative basis was, was pretty much a leader in, in their API developer programs. They saw early on how an API could help them. Amazon was always the one dragging their feet because they always saw sellers. Sellers were like the vendors. Sellers were not the customer. Uh, and I think that's changed in the past five or so years at Amazon, but Amazon has always had kind of a love-hate relationship with seller tools over its history because it's like, we're Amazon. You need to be here. We don't need to make it easy. Why should we? It's just wasted money on our part. Yeah, they they control the uh, they control the flow of the spice, right? I right. mean, that's that's their they're they're always it's always a struggle for them to build the moat but not stand in the moat. 
I would think, right? <laughs> that's that's kind of how I've seen it. And you do see these, you do see this kind of ebb and flow in this relationship um, with them. And I mean, you even actually on your on your on your uh, the re- most recent episode of your podcast, I think you were, you were talking a little bit about Amazon, uh, you know, on the logistics side and how they've, you know, they're 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 kind of opening things back up that they've shut down. Um, yeah, so it really is a back and forth with them. Now, you know, you also while you were there a channel advisor. So again, this is this is you know 01, 2010. You know, you you implemented. Uh, I think you you were kind of alluding to this this you know parallel processing. So you have and this stuff is still this framework is still in use today. You know, for for how they process all these different you know these, these millions and millions of work items every year. Um, and then I also noted that um, that that you managed to get uh, basically like a monthly cadence of releases happening without actually breaking. <laughs> You know, turning things off for a little bit, so like like true blue green deployment back when that was, uh, I'd say it was probably pretty cutting edge for 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 web tech and especially for this multiple integration. Uh, what was what was that like? Yeah, I mean, when Channelizer started, like the term SaaS didn't exist. You know what I mean? Like I, I remember when we racked servers like in the other room. And just having like two <laughs> web servers behind a switch was uh, innovation for us, um, backed by a database. And I'd say pretty quickly, the database has always been kind of the biggest bottleneck in enterprise web apps. And I think that continued through Channel Visor's history. Mostly, we were a Microsoft. We're we're actually a kind of a rare shop. We were a Microsoft shop most of our history, and so we did things some some things. Uh, we were heavy users of, of queue-based parallel processing using MSMQ. And you see a lot of enterprise systems using queue-based systems today to guarantee messages. Um, and just the volume of, of work that we had to process to get all those items through you know, the auction sites and marketplaces was always was always interesting. And on you know, the deployment side, it's really it's really about managing database state. Yeah. And so if you if you're making breaking changes to a database while you're releasing software, it's not uh-huh. a good idea. You have to make nope. non-breaking changes to a database. Basically, deploy all your software, make your database changes, non-breaking, make your, you know, the second set of code updates and then you go back and clean up the stuff. Now that you have code that supports the old database and the new database, so you can make rolling updates to code if you just change your release methodology a little bit. Yep. Yes. I yeah. I remember you know, dealing with some of these problems, and then maybe really, if you look at, at e-commerce, uh, it, it's you know it's such an it, there's there's like this there is some cyclic stuff going on. So obviously, you know, the shopping holidays that happen November, December, but then you have your, uh, my product just got featured on Oprah moments. So you have this, you do have this arbitrary scalability. And so message queues, I remember when those started coming, coming into vogue, like leaking into other, uh, into the, the, the plat on the platform side of things, but it really sounds like channel advisor was, was leading the way back then with, with, methodology philosophy and and the actual technical underpinnings of the of the platform which is just really cool yeah it, it was it was a lot of fun i think there were a lot of innovation during that time because everyone was doing everything for the first time now i remember yeah. when we moved into our first co-location facility and racking all the service like it it was 
people didn't rack stuff and wire things for you that you do. You did that when you went in, but we went from one day to Santa to another. You, yeah. you took the site down for six to eight hours because we weren't smart yeah. enough to do it another way. And we didn't have enough equipment to do it another yeah. way. Um, so <laughs> we have to we have to drive these we have to drive these physical servers like across yeah. town and, 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 the back and put them in someone else's friend's house. SUV, you know. <laughs> Man, that's that's uh, so I want to I want to I'm going to go through you you've you know and then you've done other things. So I'm going to I'm going to move on a little bit here. I mean, you were um you were you were GM of uh, of Barnes and Noble Marketplace, which uh so that's like, you know, 2011, 2012, you 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 uh and then I think eventually like 2020, uh that 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 product, you know, eventually shut down. I guess Mar- uh, you know, BNN figured out that they were not going to compete. Um, you know, it's not a core competency and they weren't going to compete with Amazon, right? That's right. That's right. Yep. And then, um, and then you end up on, and then you end up in the, in the PIM world, right? So, you know, and around then I know you started, you started like, like testing the waters with advising startups, which, which I think is, we can get into in a little bit when we start talking about your, your, your current venture, but, uh, you know, so you're, 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 you're merchantry acquired by, by Tradesmith. So yeah, in the PIM world. Um, and then, you know, from there, you, you jump into your Pitney Bowes and you start looking at, at a lot of the cross border challenges. Uh, so, so there again, like you flip the cube another to a, to a whole other face. Um, and that brings us to, uh, to, to today where, you know, you're, you've got, uh, R&W consulting and then, um, you're also an advisor for the mock Alliance. So how, you know, given the work that you're doing currently, uh, and, and the history that we've just, we've just covered, you know, what do you see going on? Uh, I mean, do you, do, do you, obviously you carry your work experience with you, but do you see things, see parallels between what's happening now and the challenges that, that the businesses you're advising face and, and what's come before, or is it, is it basically just a whole, a whole different industry at this point? Yeah, look, um, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to attribute the quote, but it's like, History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme sometimes. Yeah, sure. I, okay. I, and I always like that quote because I, I, you see people repeating the same mistakes over and over sometimes. Yeah. And I, I think an example of, of a problem that and, – and, and another thing I see happening is you're, everyone wants to get to the same outcome. They want to have the most sellers. They want to have the most products. They want to have the most GMV. But your approach to do that matters. I'm just, I'm just going to give you an example. When Amazon first said that, oh, we're going to sell things that are not books and movies and videos. We need to allow third-party sellers onto the site because we need more selection, like toys. It's a very diffuse supply. Like, How can we get third-party sellers on the site? Well, their first idea was to copy eBay. Amazon launched not a lot of, still a lot of people I don't think don't know. Amazon launched an auction site. And they they put it on a tab in the in the app. Look through your Google Images. You'll you'll see it like Amazon auctions. If you if you search for it hard wow. enough, you'll see. And so Amazon launched an auction site. And the problem is that nobody knew they had it because it was like one of ten tabs in the nav. Amazon shut that down. It didn't work. eBay was still crushing them. Amazon shut that down. Started a new product called Z Shops, which is basically like e-commerce stores for SMB sellers, but the same problem. It was like hidden in a tab on Amazon. So anyone could set up a store. Anyone could sell literally almost any item on Amazon, but they didn't. They weren't driving any traffic to it. And 
anyway, that they ended up like, well, this isn't working. So they shut that down. When they launched their marketplace, it, it, if you read the stories, like going back to like Brad Stone and, and some people who have written about like the birth of the Amazon marketplace and the history of Amazon over the years, the idea that a third party seller could be put on the on your product detail page of a retailer, that was a crazy idea because that's your bread and butter. And it turns out that that idea is the one that worked because that's where the traffic is. And so that, that just, just that one idea, it's like, it's not the selection. It's different. It's not the seller. It's different. It's where you put the selection and and the the idea behind that is you already have a site that's generating a ton of traffic. Well, yep. let's put the selection on the page that matters. Yeah. The one with the traffic on it, not the one where no one can find it. Wow, that's man, that's a that's a that's an interesting thing to go back and remember. I actually I don't remember Amazon auctions, but it's it's I think it's also important to call out that it, this is it, it you know when you when you look back at someone's success, whether it's whether it's an individual like a founder or or even a, a company like Amazon, you know, there are there are definite failures along the way, and some of them are failures that are just so obvious. Like, hey, you 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 you've got this concept and it's right there, but you've just buried yeah. it in your menu. You know, it, it's uh, like I mean. I mean, you were in the agency world for a time. It's like it's, you were offering like conversion rate optimization service, and like we're going to start with the terms and conditions. We're going to optimize the hell out of that page, <laughs> right? It's like, well, let's maybe we should spend time on your number one landing page or your number one exit page. Like maybe one of those two pages we should start with. Yeah, always index index on <laughs> you know on eyeballs or or screen readers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it does seem it does seem a little bit it does seem a little bit obvious. But but is this one of those is this one of those like category of mistakes that you see businesses making today, just again and again? A hundred percent. Look, there there have been so how many marketplaces have you seen in the past ten years saying Amazon isn't good at merchandising. We're going to launch our own marketplace. And we're going to compete with Amazon. There's there are dozens of them, and they all failed yeah. because they weren't at they didn't have scale. No, like no one cared about the site. There was nobody on the yeah. site. So, a marketplace is a tool to solve the problem of you have unsatisfied demand, which means you need more selection. Right. That's what a marketplace is for. It's like your problem needs to be. Like the answer to your problem needs to be more selection. If the answer to your yeah. problem isn't more selection, then your problem isn't a marketplace. Like you need more traffic. Like go yeah. get yourself some more traffic first, then have the demand problem. Then you can bring the selection to the demand. But if you try to do those things in the other order, then – and you could see that. Look, Amazon has, re, has launched something called Buy With Prime. and. Yeah. It's possible that they could have the same problem again, not because they don't have a lot of resources, but you're putting the prime badge on sites that nobody cares about. Like that is, yeah. It 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 it's not necessarily like that. It's gonna fail, but if it does fail, that's why it's gonna fail because it's on these sites. Like, I'm just gonna use an example. Like, if you're a CPG brand 
what's your number one channel today? Like, where where do your products sell? If you're in CPG, yeah. you're, you're going to sell at retailers and grocery stores, right? That's your number one channel. Yeah. What's your number two channel? Because yeah, that's where that's where the eyeballs are. A Amazon.com, Walmart.com. Yep. That's your next channel. What's your like a hundredth channel? Like your direct to consumer website. Yep. And so buy with yep. time is now going to be on a CPG brand's direct to consumer website. Like, just going to be like fifty eyeballs there. Yeah, it's now it's an interesting, it's a really interesting point. I mean, where so when so when this inevitably fails, and I mean we're we're calling it, you know, uh, Rick Watson says this is this is this may fail. Uh, what do you think would be the iteration, or what would be the smart iteration for them? Uh, just just completely don't 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 bother with this, or is no, is this look, just the first step in a in a good direction? I, th I think Amazon, if BioPharm is going to work, it needs to help brands get traffic. That's yeah. that's what I think. To me, if if you sign up with Buy With Prime, and all of a sudden your products are showing up in Amazon search engine, now you have something that's interesting, because uh -huh. now people start to think of Amazon like a general purpose search engine. Uh -huh. Like I go to Amazon, I type in something. Like I go to Google and type in something. I'm looking for yep. something to buy. I click. I don't stay on the Amazon site, but I could still buy with Prime. Yeah, and I could still get it and tomorrow. Is that the right idea? I'm not sure, but at least you're starting from a place where people are finding the the, the products. That's interesting because mo you know most of us have been trained to. I know for, for any kind of commodity experience, um, you, you know, unless I'm unless I'm being targeted by a brand on Facebook or Instagram, you know, if I need to buy anything commodity related, or I just don't I don't really care about the function. I just need it. And I need it soon. I mean, Amazon is the place that I go, so it 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 makes sense that uh, that they can they can sort of you know I'm not I don't I don't go to Google and necessarily buy from within the Google interface, but it does make sense that if I'm searching and finding all these products listed in Amazon, that then yeah, I like your point. Amazon would become sort of the 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 um, the even more of a Google for shopping than it is yeah, today. A place to buy anything. That's really yeah, the place to buy anything and everything. Um, now. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in this business, uh, you know, because I because I work for I've worked for uh, e-commerce platform or e-commerce solution companies for for you know, gosh for for quite a while now, um, I have I have seen the rise of these marketplace companies, um, and and at first they seem to be like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna figure out how to integrate with some of these platforms, you know, so that those can can start to give the appearance of. Or, or provide some of the functionality, the multi-layer, that that extra entity that's involved there, the the, the vendor that's selling, uh, and then pretty rapidly. And of course, I'm thinking primarily of Miracle here. Uh, and pretty rapidly, they become platforms and communities and ecosystems unto themselves. You know, is this is this just the same thing that was happening before, or is this something different? Yeah, I think. Look, and any time when you can help demand find supply efficiently there is some kind of marketplace opportunity and i think that's what miracle has been a uh really good at creating um i, I think that's number one second it's, it's hard to build a marketplace i mean technically yeah. it's extremely challenging uh yeah. and you probably know from your magento days there's always been like tons of like multi-vendor marketplace yep. plugins and they kind of half work 
and you know they're not yeah. integrated it's... and so what miracle got the idea that um look it's not going to work for a lot of people so we better charge a lot for it you know it, <laughs> yeah. it has a lot it has a lot of value miracle isn't cheap to adopt and for good reason um if you're going to work with them it, it it makes sense um and i think they have a big opportunity in a lot of emergency categories too like b2b industrial verticals where you still yeah. have like diffuse supply that needs to be connected to you know a better buying experience than picking up the phone and calling someone yeah yep now so i'll switch i'll switch um switch up a little bit here i mean i, I think i've seen i've seen walmart uh, really execute uh not well a few years back but it seems like they're making they're making some real some real strides some real smart decisions there and i've i've had the, the pleasure of, of meeting with um a few people over there over the years, um, some some smart cookies. Uh, what do you you know? Do you have any thoughts on what what Walmart is is doing to 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 really uh, win or at least you know make sure they're not falling too far behind Amazon? Yeah, I, I think what Walmart is is let's say even before the economy situation in the past year which I think objectively you could say that if consumer dollars are being squeezed and we're looking to save money, Walmart has been pounding the same drum for 20 years. Everyone knows, like, if I want the cheapest prices, I'm just going to go to Walmart. So this, the time benefits Walmart right now. But even before this, during the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, I would say um, Walmart's acquisition of Jet kind of gave them – Regardless of whether you think it's a good idea, I think Jet as a as a site was pretty uh, not great generally. Yeah. Uh, and and not at, not at scale, except it, maybe if you were in New York City, uh, like I am. But beyond that, not a not really a, a great experience. Walmart had started to acquire, you know direct-to-consumer brands during this rev you know they acquired bonobos and hay needle and, yep. and you know these companies which are basically not profitable businesses and at some point like adults stood up in the room and was like look we're walmart we got to be what we are in walmart and and kind of the key ideas <laughs> that i think walmart adopted were were really two it's like let's take the best ideas that amazon already has and the best ideas that Target already has. And let's build them into Walmart because we're already huge and have so much scale that if these are good ideas, we're just going to make them that much better. So on the Amazon side, what they took was first was the marketplace, second is fulfillment, and third is advertising. And these are three of the most profitable Amazon businesses there are. And a marketplace flywheel that also has an advertising business <laughs> attached to it. It's extremely profitable and it works if your site has traffic, which Walmart does. So um, I think that's what they took from Amazon, those those three big ideas. Okay. Um, on the other side, what they took from Target is fulfilling from stores is more profitable than shipping from warehouses across the country um, because yeah. the product is closer to the consumer. And so I think Target has been incredibly innovative, I would say, relative to the industry in the past eight, 10 years with regards to store-based fulfillment such that now they 
fulfill something like 80, no, 98% of e-commerce orders from their stores, which is yeah. you know basically unheard of. Um, yeah, that's incredible. And they innovated a lot in their supply chain to get there. And Walmart is like, okay, that's a good idea. We'll take that. And and so they're expanding their stores with micro fulfillment and and improving their supply chain to reduce their costs. And so they're taking the best and most profitable parts of Amazon's e-commerce model and the best and most profitable parts of Target's e-commerce model and kind of melding them together. And that combined with the economic tailwinds, that, that's why you see Walmart growing, I would say, faster generally than the industry right now. Okay. I mean, that, that makes... Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You've got and you have <laughs> some tremendously smart individuals in both places, but it is it is interesting to watch them either you know d- discover what they've done wrong, or in some cases get to you know realize like, hey, this is wait, this is what we do, and this is the right way to look at our business and and make these make these smart decisions. Now, speaking of smart decisions, you know you are you have a, a consulting firm now. Uh, what kind of so I'm gonna I'm gonna round out this conversation with. Uh, uh, probably three things. So that you know, the kinds of companies that you look for there, um, what um, you know, what what you're doing for them now, and then and then really what what do you see what do you see in the in the near or sort of midterm future as you are as you are advising these companies and helping them helping them stand out? Yeah. Um, so I would say there's two types of companies that I look for. One is um, private equity-backed brands, so private equity firms and private equity-backed brands that are looking to digitally transform. You know, they recognize that we have this brand that has some equity, but technologically, the way we serve our customers, the channels we're using, the people that are behind the company, the processes we're using, they're just not modern enough, and our competitors are handing our lunch to us. And so what can we do to transform as, as small a period as possible um, so that we can get the company back on the right track uh, and make the most of this investment? And sometimes that's private equity, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's privately held companies that take, take investment, but that's kind of generally the thesis. And I would say what distinguishes my work from an agency in particular is because my job is to be a friend of the board and the management team. That's the level yeah. I want to operate at. To yeah. the extent that you already have you know, a good leader with a good team that has a known problem, like we need to implement a website, that's what an agency is great at. But I would yeah. say these earlier unstructured problems where you just kind of have this big mess in some companies, um, <laughs> they have money, they have an idea, but they don't have much more than that. They might need to like change out their people you know, they might have some people yep. that are are useful for the journey, but others that are not. They might have outdated processes. They may not be on the right channels. They may not know what agencies are even good to talk to if they're being pitched yep. by agencies. Like, should we do this? Should we not do this? Um, what's our potential on Amazon? Is direct-to-consumer the right thing for our brand? Yep. Uh, how do we serve our customers better and get kind of get to that next tier of uh, growth. So these kind of unstructured problems are, are the ones that I enjoy the most because that's where the most, um, you know, 
optimizing those last sort of few points of conversion or something like that. That's like, there are way better people in the world to do something like that. But I, I, yeah. I just kind of enjoyed, I, I always enjoy these problems where um, it's kind of a multi-dimensional puzzle and like time and money are also a factor in it too. It's not just so like keep pouring money at it. It's like, how can we do this the most profitably uh, so that like we can maximize a return in the next two years and maybe we'll, maybe the business gets sold in two years and then the next yeah. investor takes it the next, you know, next step in the yeah, journey. The next step. Yeah. That's, and that's a, that has got to be really exciting to be a part of. And, and, and you know, as you think about, so the, there's the short term there, like, Hey, we can, we can get this thing operationally efficient, get it in front of the right, in front of the right customers and the right channels. Um, and then, hand it off to someone who will, you know, who has, who has that next, that next vision, that next, that next market, uh, or, or other, you know, portfolio companies where they can, they can find some, you know, that, that chocolate peanut butter moment. Uh, what are the, what are the things that you see maybe, maybe for, for, for these customers that you're advising today or these clients that you're advising today? Uh, you, you know, what do you, what do you see on the horizon for, for them or maybe just in general for, uh, for this space over the next uh, yeah. two to four years? Yeah. Look, I mean, obviously there's a, there's an increased focus on profitability and impact that has taken over the investment climate. Uh, you know, I think that kind of goes without saying. I also yeah. think, look, the interesting thing is also like from the people point of view, you know, there's a lot of talk about how AI is going to take over everything. And I, I think that's true for certain types of work. But what I, what I see no shortage of work for is someone who knows enough technology to be dangerous, but then they also know how the business works. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of connector role and yep. historically in software, it's been kind of like a project manager or a business analyst, or a product manager, or you know, head of digital, or head of UX, like whatever it is, someone who understands how to make software to make consumers' life better, but they also understand like why the marketing leader isn't hitting their numbers, and can like have a conversation with that person um, yeah. about the reasons why that is connecting those dots is incredibly valuable now. I think it's been it's more valuable than ever. And I see company after company that these the technology groups, you know, the you know, the, you know, the for lack of a better word and I can say this with love, like the propeller heads, you know, that yeah. that are just in the corner implementing technology yep. and don't have to care about the budget or the you know, hitting the numbers or whatever. And the marketing leader who's responsible for growth or, or sales leader who's responsible for growth, having someone who can bring those groups together, it's still rare in a lot of companies to find yeah. a, a functioning product management connect, you know, digital connector layer. Well, I mean, so you're, you're kind of describing that, that rare white elk <laughs> candidate, you know, for this, for the, to, to, to be the connector. And I love it. So, Hey, you know, product managers out there, if, if, if you know, whoever you are, if this sounds like you, like I, I, I've got the tech, I don't write code, by the way, uh, I, I'm dying to ask you like, Rick, can you, can you still, can you still code? I, I don't code anymore. I have, I haven't code in, in, I don't know, 2003, I could still write SQL. <laughs> Uh, that, that, that's yep. for whatever reason, SQL is something I never forgot. Um, uh, yep. and, um, just because it's so, 
I think interesting and and useful. But in terms yeah. of writing code, no, I, I haven't I haven't written code in a, in a long time. So. Well, I, uh, I I also know what what that feels like, but then again, I think you know it's a good demonstration that hey, you can you can start there, and that can give you a great orientation to the business, and uh, and you can grow and do really amazing things afterwards. Well, Rick, that that brings us to the end of the uh, at the end of our time together, and man, what a what a fascinating. Uh, multifaceted view on this space. So I really, uh, we really appreciate you taking some time to be with us. And I'm, uh, I'll look forward to seeing you at some, some trade shows in the future. All right. Thanks a lot, Ben. I appreciate the time. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, this is Ben Mark signing off from the Commerce Famous Podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>